All right, Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read the whole text that we read last week from 19 down through 25, but our concentration this morning will be on verse 24 and verse 25. Verse 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath come with which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another in to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You once again for Your Word. Father, I thank You for the presence of Your Spirit that You put within Your children. I thank You, Father, for the convicting power of the Word and the Spirit. I pray, Lord, You'd help me this morning. I pray, Lord, that You would give us clarity. I pray that you would help us to see the importance of and the purpose of the gathering here, the worship gathering. And Father, I pray that where uh, we fail you, that you would expose our sin, that we might be made to conform to the image of Christ. May you be glorified this morning. Amen. Last week in the sermon, I made the point that doctrine and theology cannot be divorced from our, ne- our deeds. What we believe impacts how we behave. Um, and that's the case about anything. Uh, religion, politics, whatever the case may be. What you believe about something impacts how you react to or how you live in light of that. I was once asked um, by a lady in a, in a church I pastored, why do we need all this doctrine and theology stuff? Can I just have Jesus? Is Jesus just enough? And oddly enough, she failed to realize that that is actually a doctrinal statement in and of itself. And you might expect that statement maybe from an immature Christian or uh, one who has not been saved very long. But, and that's what the, que- the, the question, that question really does is displays immaturity and a lack of biblical understanding. Doctrine is what we believe. It's the teaching of what we believe. And theology is simply the study of God. It's the science, if you will, of God. If the truth be known, the modern American evangelical church has largely relegated theology as being irrelevant to life. And that would be a question for us, right? What, okay, what does theology and doctrine have to do with my everyday life? What does it have to do with me out on the farm, out on uh, the road? What does it have to do with how I live my life? 
Now, some people think, well, you're just using big words and would think that this study is just for pastors, for theologians, for seminary professors, and those interested in academics. Now, while theology and doctrine itself are academic studies, they have great spiritual and practical implications. R.C. Sproul, a a Bible teacher and pastor um, who passed away about four years ago, wrote a book called Everyone's a Theologian. Every single individual. Now, why would everyone be a theologian? The point that he makes in the book is that every person has a belief of who God is. That therefore makes you a theologian whether you realize it or not. But the question is this. Does your belief of who God is come from the Scripture, a biblical understanding of God, or does your belief about who God is come from the tradition of the elders? That's something we need to take into consideration. There's a lot of things that are posted on social media these days that at their first glance seem to be Christian. They seem to be sound, but upon further evidence and further study, you realize that it's not very sound. It's not very biblical. Anytime, think about this, anytime that you, that you think about a biblical teaching, whatever it may be, and you seek to understand it further, you're engaging in theology. You realize that? Well, if, you, uh, if, if there's something, let's say eschatology, the, the end time, study of end times, you are engaging in the overarching study of theology when you go to the Scripture to see what the Scripture has to say about the return of Christ. We are engaging in theology this morning as we seek to study and know what the Bible says about the importance of the gathering on Sunday morning. The modern American church has given itself to pragmatics. That's where we're at today, and that's evidence. There's a church, I could say the name of the, of the pastor, a former pastor, um, and you would probably know, but they at one time made this baptismal for kids. It was a fire truck. And when a kid would get baptized, man, the lights and whistles and all that stuff would go off and You're thinking, well, why would they do that? Well, I'm telling you, as a 53-year-old male, I would want to get baptized in a fire truck. I mean, if I saw that, I would want to go forward and get baptized, right? So you can imagine when they're baptizing four-, five-, and six-year-old kids, what what are other kids going to do? Some kids are naturally followers. They're going to want to do the same thing. That's pragmatism at, at work. And, And pragmatism, a definition of pragmatism is the approach that assesses the truth of meaning of theories or beliefs in terms of the success of their practical application. So let's take that fire truck that that was made into a baptismal. Its its success is gauged by how many kids get baptized, right? Doesn't matter if they they truly were born again. It's the fact that we baptized 100 kids this month. You, You see where that causes a problem. The churches are full of people like that. I'm I'm reading books on church history and it's frustrating to see where we have come to in our day and age. The fact is that Jesus did not tell His disciples, go build large churches. Right? He didn't say, hey, go build these monstrous churches. What did He say in Matthew 28? Go make churches. Disciples. That's my duty. That's your duty. Go make disciples. 
Matter of fact, in Acts 2.47 that we'll be looking at a little bit later, it says at the very end that the Lord added to the church such as should be saved. The Lord added those people to the church. Now, make no mistake, I desire to see this place full as much as anybody else. As a matter of fact, I'm grieved when, I, when, when after we get settled in and the service begins, I'm grieved to see when people are missing. I, I would love to be able to have this place full and have this side full and, and maybe get to a point where we're looking and say, hey, we've got to have a bigger building. That would be a great thing considering where we're at out in the country. We're out in the middle of nowhere. But as long as I'm the pastor, as long as God allows me to be the pastor, I'm not going to sacrifice nor compromise the truth of God's Word for the sake of more numbers. When I go to my preacher meetings, I don't want to brag about how many we've added to the roles because of our pragmatism. If God's going to build the church, He's going to do it through the preaching of His Word. He's going to do it through the saints obeying His Word. And that's the amazing thing about studying history is when God has smiled upon a congregation, it has been because a pastor was committed to the ministry of the Word and to prayer. God didn't call pastors to build His church. Jesus in Matthew 16 said, I will build my church. God has called pastors to simply be faithful ministers of God, of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 and 2. The building of the church is up to the head of the church, which is Jesus Christ. We see that in Ephesians 5. The church is not a social club where you pay dues, known as tithes, and you're allowed certain rights and privileges. That's not what the church is. It's not an entertainment venue where you can be entertained by music and a clown posing as a preacher who is telling jokes to get you to laugh and maybe give a little message, motivational message about how you should feel better about yourself. The church, as we know it and as we see it, is made up of born-again believers who gather to worship the, the living God by the public reading of Scripture the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in praise to God for who He is and thanksgiving for what He has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. We are then exhorted to love and to love one another through the preaching of God's Word. Then we are dispersed into the world to proclaim the message of our King. And that message is repent or you will perish. Folks, the gospel by its very nature, the Bible tells us, is an offensive message. And that brings us to the point that doctrine divides. God's Word divides. If you don't believe that, then drive around our county alone and you will see churches of various denominational stripes. And there are clear doctrinal distinctions in these churches. What sets Baptist apart from anybody else? Well, what sets Baptist apart from Mormons? It's a fundamental understanding of who Jesus Christ is. The Mormons have, they believe in Jesus. They believe Jesus was a man. They believe He was a teacher just like the Muslims do. But they don't believe Him to be the Son of God. And that is 
antichrist to believe that Jesus is not the Son of God. What separates Baptists? And I would say this, Baptists and Presbyterians are probably the two closest. There are some minor distinctions between Baptists and Presbyterians, but when it comes down to the gospel, we are, we are the two that are the closest. So what separates us from churches like the Church of Christ? Well, they believe that you have to be baptized to be saved. They believe that you can lose your salvation. That goes against the Scripture. Our text today provides us three exhortations of what we must do in light of who Jesus is, in light of what He has done, and in light of what He continues to do for those who come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. The first two exhortations we covered last week, and they have to deal with our relationship to the Father. We saw in verse um, 22 that we are to draw near to God by faith. You cannot approach God without faith. It can't happen. It won't happen. It's not how we approach Him. We approach Him by faith in Christ. So they have to deal with our, our relationship to the Father. We're to draw near to God, come to Him in this earthly life, and we do so in prayer. We do that in prayer. Now, what do we think of the Father? How do we look at Him, I believe, has a reflection upon our prayer life. And I'm not saying that we have to spend hours upon hours upon hours in prayer. That's really, really and truly, outside of Daniel 9... And John 17, it was Daniel 9 was Daniel's prayer. And Dan, John 17 is the high, what's known as the high priestly prayer. It was the prayer of Jesus. Those are the two longest prayers in the Scripture. Other than that, you see short prayers. Now, our short prayers need to be fervent prayers. They need to be, as we saw in James 5, the, the, right, the fervent righteous prayer, uh, the, the effectual fervent prayer, I'm sorry, of a righteous man avails much. We approach Him in righteousness with righteous hands. We approach Him confessing our sin. But we cannot uh, approach Him haphazardly. And He has given us this means, this opportunity to approach Him through prayer. That's why we ought to give our more attention to prayer in the assembly on our worship day. So we're to approach Him in prayer. We're to approach Him in faithful prayer. The second exhortation is to hold fast without wavering the, con- the confession of Jesus as the Lord, because He will fulfill His promise. Take into consideration, I mentioned this last week, that what was going on in that day, they were under persecution for being Christians. You were deemed an atheist if you did not say Caesar is Lord. If you said Jesus is Lord and you did not say Caesar is Lord, you were seen as an atheist. Now, the profession that was talking about here is that Jesus is Lord. He is the King of kings. He is the sovereign of the world. He will come back and He even rules now in our life and in our hearts by His Word. And the promise that He gave was that He would come back, right? That He's coming to, to, to rapture those who are left. And then we come to the third exhortation. And it's evident in the title of the sermon that I didn't give you... Um, when I started. But it's an exhortation to mutual love. An exhortation to mutual love. And the question we want to answer today is, what is the importance of the gathering? Why is there such an importance put upon 
the Sunday gathering. This exhortation has to do with our relationship with those whom we are in covenant relationship with in this local gathering of the church. Our God that we serve is a covenantal God. We see He established a covenant of works with Adam. He established a covenant with Abraham. And He established a covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. And we see a God who who is a covenantal God. Therefore, church membership is not just a, a, a membership to some club. It is a covenant that we enter into with one another. The church I pastored in Pampa, it was, it was established before I got there. But there was a, um, we got to where we could do it in about three or four hours. We would have a class of what the church believed, what we were about, and things of that nature. And at the end of the class, and, and you weren't forced to do it at the time, it was at, at, at your, whenever you wanted to do it, you would sit with the elders and you would give your testimony of how you came to faith in Christ. And upon that testimony... Um, that was discerned by the elders, there was a paper that was signed. And on that paper, what the paper basically said was that we are going to pastor you and you are going to allow us to pastor you and we're going to hold one another accountable. Now, there were some people when when they instituted that just quit the church. They got mad. And my question is this. If God has worked effectually in your life by His grace, why would you not want to share that testimony with other people you are going to spend eternity with in heaven. I mean, why would you not? That was one of the things that was asked about me when I first came. Brian, tell us about how you got saved. Well, why do you want to know that for? I just want to come preach. What if I'd have said that? Well, I can tell you there would have been some people who said, well, you need to go on down the road. If you don't want to share your testimony, you need to go on down the road. So this, this covenant relationship, and it's really... The importance can't be put on that enough, as we'll see, we'll go through this. So the two verses that we're looking at today get to the importance of church membership. What's what's the importance of tying yourself, if you will, to a local church? And I want to tell you, there are some good preachers on TV, very few, but they do not do for you what the local church does for you. They cannot do for you what the local church does for you. Number one, they don't know who you are. They have no idea who you are. I know who Charles Stanley is. He has no idea who Brian Thomas is. I, 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 know, John McCar- I know who John MacArthur is. He, he, had, he didn't have a clue who Brian Thomas is. So those guys, that, that, though they have a ministry that God has given them, they are not to replace the local church. They cannot replace what takes place in this gathering if it's done according to the Scripture. Now, let me say this about church membership. It is not required for entrance into heaven. Just as baptism is not required for entrance into heaven. However, there is clear scripture throughout, in particular, the epistles that give us what the church is about and that we should be committed to it. The importance in church membership is seen in our call to gather, not abandon the gathering. That word forsaking there means to abandon, to desert to neglect. So we are not, the, the importance of church membership is seen in our call to not forsake that, to not desert that as the saints of God. And the purpose is so that we would incite and encourage and even rebuke one another. 
by exercising the gift that God has sovereignly given you to serve His church. The gathering of the church is not all about coming together so the preacher can make a fool of himself for 45 minutes or so that we can sing some hymns that we like and make us feel good. That's not the purpose of the gathering. The purpose of the gathering is one that we worship God, that we sing praise to our God. Uh, We think of Colossians 3.16, let the Word of God dwell in you richly, speaking to yourself in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's the purpose for our singing. It's to, it's, singing is an expression of praise to God for what He has done. It's an expression of thanksgiving to God for what He has done. The praise is for who He is. I want you to consider this, um, this statement out of one of my commentaries, Kistemacher and Hendrickson in their exposition of Hebrews. Carefully consider how we ardently incite one another to love and to do good works. This is what our text has to say. Let's look at that real quick. Verse 24. Let us consider one another. To con- Consider. You're thinking about someone, right? To provoke, in a good sense, unto love and to good works. Now, verse 25 is the how that takes place. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together in the manner of some, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another... And so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we have an exhortation that's given to mutual love. And we'll see, as you see in your bulletin, there, there, we've got three points that we're going to be looking at. And that is done through the local church. So we are not to forsake the gathering. You said, well, you don't understand. And look, let's just get this out of the way right now. I understand there are circumstances that cause us to miss. I'm not throwing a blanket over this and saying... That, that there are not instances where we, beyond our control, if you will, that cause us to miss. I understand that. That is not what I'm saying. But I want you to listen to what the Word of God has to say. Going on in this statement from this commentary. The writer says that you are to put your mind to find ways to provoke. So here's the deal. We don't come in through the doors and sit down. This, what goes on here is not a mindless game. This preaching, worship, ought to engage our mind. It ought to engage our heart to the point that it affects the life that we live in the church as well as outside of the church. So, we're to put our mind to provoke in a good sense one another, to increase your expressions of love that result in doing noble works. Here's what that's not saying. What we're not saying is that You encourage one another, provoke one another, stir up one another to do good works without the church and then come back and brag on what you've done. Now, most of us in here probably, I hope, do things without being noticed. We do good works to our neighbor. By the way, that's love towards our neighbor. We do good things and we don't have to go brag on it. Right? Social media has destroyed that thing. You, You see people... Going buying 25 hamburgers at McDonald's and they got a video following them around about them handing them out to the homeless. That's not a good work. That's not a work by faith. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 6 that you're doing your alms before men. You're doing your benevolent works before men. So we're to increase our expressions of love that result in doing noble works. 
A Jesus summary of the law, that is the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's often abbreviated as love yourself. But this royal law extends beyond the neighbor to God Himself. So deeds done in love for the neighbor honor God the Father. When you see a homeless person standing on the street corner and you go buy them a Whataburger and you bring it back to them, you're showing love for the Father by showing love for your neighbor. When you do something for someone, you're showing love for the Father by showing love to your neighbor. Keeping, therefore, keeping and fulfilling the second part of the summary, love your neighbor as yourself, actually constitutes keeping and fulfilling the first part of the summary. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind. You cannot do one without doing the other. To love God is to love your neighbor. And by faith, doing good works is to love God. You follow what I'm saying? So we come to the first point. There is an incitement to love. Mutual love. In John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. And what was that? That you love one another. If you have love one to another. Now make no mistake, love is not this goofy feeling that you see embodied in a Hallmark movie. Love is an action word. It, it demands that you do something. My love as a pastor for Valley View Baptist Church demands that I spend time studying God's Word, that I spend time praying, and that I deliver that message that is God's Word. Genuine love wrought by God in the life of a believer is not stagnant. I love my wife. I love my wife dearly. But it's not just a phrase that I say. There's things that I do for her that show my expression of love to her. And that's how it ought to be in the church. Our love for one another ought to be seen in our expressions of love one to another. And a lot of that comes around to having spiritual conversations. That we would sit and say, Seth, how's God working in your life? Or Brother James, how do you see God working in your life? What has God shown you in His Word? And how has that caused you to love your neighbor as yourself? Do you see how this becomes more than a social club? Do you see how this becomes more than just a gathering of people who have been dispersed throughout the week and we're going to sing some songs and maybe the preacher won't go too long and I can go eat, right? We've got to get to Bears before 2 o'clock or before 1 o'clock because he's going to shut down and not cook anymore for anybody. Folks, there's an importance for this gathering. Our love for God is displayed by our devotion to Him and obedience to His command. So love is never without action. It's not. It's evidence in, in Christ as the husband's love for the wife is compared to Christ's love for His church. If love is the fulfillment of the law of God, when you forsake loving others, in particular those in the local church, by provoking them, stirring them up, to love others and do good works, you are sinning against God because you're disobeying His Word. Folks, when we just rush in and then rush out, how can we stir one another up? How can we provoke one another to love and good works? 
It's amazing to see the times that Paul writes in his epistles. And he commends the churches for their love for the saints. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Specifically, he's praying, not in general, but he's specifically praying for them. Remembering without ceasing, listen, your work of faith. Faith without works is dead. So your work of faith and your labor of love. Not just something that you do, but just something you pour your life into. And patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Folks, love is not merely acknowledging someone at church. It's not merely me walking up to you and shaking your hand. My pastor growing up used to say, love seeks the other person's benefit. Love seeks one another's benefit. So, we are to consider one another. Consider how we can provoke one another. Consider how we can encourage one another. Consider how we can stir one another up. To love, and then, notice, to good works. So there's an incitement to love, and that's seen in our fellowship, it's seen in our encouraging one another, and there's an incitement to serve. Which brings the question, what are good works? If the Bible says that none are good, how then can we do good works? Well, the reality is this, and this is the good news, right? Is that we are made good by the righteousness of Christ. The Bible is clear. There's none good, no, not one. As a matter of fact, Isaiah says that your your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Well, if we're that depraved and if we're not that good, then how can we do good works? Well... We're made good by the righteousness of Christ. His atoning death and the Spirit's work of applying that atonement to us makes us a new creation in Christ. Remember, a couple of weeks ago we talked about not just the forgiveness of sin and the forgetting of sin, but the new nature that we are given in Christ. This atonement makes us a new creation in Christ, therefore making us good by faith in Christ. 1 Peter 1.4 says, If you have been made a partaker of the divine nature. Folks, this gets to words like regeneration, where we are made a new creation. It gets to words like we being born again. What what does that even mean, right? We throw... I love... No, I don't love. It kind of... Kind of grieves me to see people try to make the, the, the distinction between a Christian and a born-again Christian. There is no distinction. If you are a, a Christian, you have been born again by God. Being an American doesn't make you a Christian. Being a patriot doesn't make you a Christian. Attending a church does not make you a Christian. If you have not been born again by God Himself, you are not a Christian. You can attend church all you want. If you are not repenting of your sin as evidence of God's work in your life, you are not a Christian. That's the reality that we see in Scripture. This is the message that must be proclaimed. And the truth is, if we loved our neighbor truly as we love ourselves, we would be witnessing to those people. We would be bringing the gospel to them. We, we would tell them, hey, unless you repent, you will perish. 
a man's works are divided then into two categories. There's either dead works performed before salvation, Hebrews 9.14, and then there's good works motivated by the grace of God after salvation. Good works before salvation are, are not really good works. They're dead works, the Bible calls them. They will not get you favor with God. For works to be good, and the good is profitable or, benefit, or benevolent, Christ must first be in the heart. You must first be born again for the works to be good. If you have not been born again, your works cannot be good. Maybe in the eyes of the world, but not in the eyes of God. Jesus' works didn't make Him good. Because He is the personification of goodness. He, he is goodness personified. And then pertaining to man, only if man believes in Christ as God, can he as a believer do works which are acceptable or accepted as good. Folks, our love for one another, our love to one another, is the display of God's effectual call through His Word and the giving of His Spirit. Do you want to know, if you, you want some assurance, how do you love those within the church? Do you want assurance of salvation? How do you love those within the church? The word preached coupled with the giving of the Spirit produces faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word. Well, it's not just the hearing of God's Word that produces faith. The hearing of the Word, the hearing of the Gospel has to be met, has to be coupled with God giving of His Spirit. And that's what produces life in the unbeliever. Our love to our neighbor through good works is the witness to the world of the effectual call of the gospel on our life. How is it that we can witness to a world? Jesus said, by the way, that a cold cup of water in my name basically is a witness. I, I don't remember the, the whole verse there. But, but think about that. The good works that we display gives evidence to the confession of faith that we give with our mouth. I'm going to say this again. I don't know that we, we really wrap our mind around this as much as we should. Saving faith is not a private matter for you to keep to yourself. We should not be telling people, I'm a Christian, that's my business. It is a personal matter that we are to put on display for other Christians to see and for the world to see so that they see we are what we profess to be. We, we can't just say I'm a Christian and I'm going to keep it to myself. right? Because we meet, need to display our love by good works and that's the evidence that the world sees that we are what we say we are. So there's a stirring to love. There's an incitement to love. There's an incitement to serve. And how is that accomplished? Look at verse 25. And that brings us to the third point. Really the whole point of the gathering. It's really twofold. One, it's to encourage, exhort one another, to provoke one another, whatever, to these good works and the love. But it's also to persevere together. Look at verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, encouraging one another. Look around this morning, see who is missing, and either this afternoon or tomorrow morning, call them and say, hey, we missed y'all. Don't know what's going on. Hope everything's okay. How can I pray for you? 
We love you. We desire for you to see you in the service. That, that's everyone's responsibility. The one another is not just the pastor to the people. The one another is everyone to each other. You understand that? That it's not my sole responsibility to encourage you. You have a, a, a responsibility to encourage one another. So what was taking place here, and just based off the simple reading, that um, not to forsake as the manner of some is, there were some habits that had been created by these people in this church that they would forsake the gathering. Now consider there was persecution going on. Their life and livelihood was at stake. And so they would think probably... I'm just not going to go to church. I'm not going to associate with them. I can keep my job. I can keep my way of life. And everything's good to go. And Paul says, no, don't do that. You don't forsake the gathering. You don't abandon the gathering. Again, Kistemacher and Hendrickson write, one of the first indications of a lack of love towards God and the neighbor is for a Christian to stay away from the worship service. Again, let's uh, aside from things that come up, if we just abandon the worship service, we're telling God, I can do this without you. We're telling God, I don't love you, and I don't love those people at that church. He forsakes the communal obligations of attending these meetings and displays the symptoms of selfishness and self-centeredness. Wow, that's some strong language. Right? The gathering, folks, is not just a necessary evil because you're a Christian. The gathering for worship is a mandate. We hate mandates, right? In these last couple of years, there's all sorts of mandates coming down. And we have grown weary of mandates. But folks, we should not grow weary of biblical mandates. Because God has given them to us. Consider Revelation 1.10. John, on the Isle of Patmos, writing, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. What is the Lord's Day? Well, in the New Testament, it's Sunday. It's the first day of the week. And there's a significance in that because that's the day that Jesus rose from the grave. So every Sunday when we gather, guess what we're celebrating? The resurrection. We are celebrating the risen Christ. We don't have to wait till Easter comes around. We celebrate the risen Christ. So John is saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That, that tells you probably, well, he's in jail, right? There may have been some other Christians on that aisle. But they're worshiping on the Lord's Day in spirit and in truth. And he says, that's when these visions, and he heard the great voice of a trumpet. Then Paul in 1 Corinthians 16.2 says this, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him that there be no gatherings when I come. Now, here's, there's two birds with one stone right here, all right? Church attendance and giving that we see right here. Now, he doesn't say tithe, but he says that every one of you lay by him in store. Now, as far as giving goes, I mean, I have not preached on giving to my knowledge in two years that I've been, over two years I've been here. I, I just when it comes up in the text, we'll handle it. It's here in a verse that we're going to use, so I'm going to handle it just for a moment. 
If we in this dispensation of grace, in this era of grace, have seen the benevolence of God in our life, should we not be a little bit more benevolent in our giving? And look, I understand that this is about each of us having a sacrificing. My sacrifice may be a little bit different than your sacrifice. But nonetheless, we are told to give. And there are reasons for that. But he says on the first day of the week, what's implied here is, hey, you go to church, right? You go to church. You gather with your people. Now last week, when we were closing, I said I wanted you to think about a few things concerning this. What does it mean to not forsake the gathering considering the world we live in today? Now think about that. With, with all the mess that we have, the, 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 the coronavirus is real, right? I've had it twice in the last year. God has preserved my life. It's real. People are getting it. People are dying from it. But how are we to live our life in light of that? The just shall live by faith. That's how we're to live our life. We don't live foolishly, right? But we live by faith. What are the dangers of forsaking the gathering of believers? What's the danger in a person saying, you know what? I'm not even going to church anymore. I'm just going to stay home. I'm going to give you a couple of things here in a moment. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. Now, I'm not going to take the time to look at this because I'm running out of time. But go look at Acts chapter 2, verse 40 through 47. And what you're going to find, that, that is like right at Pentecost. Peter has just preached the greatest message ever in all of Christianity. People are coming to know Christ. God, matter of fact, verse 47 is what I quoted earlier. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And what you see in that passage is a community of believers. Now, a community is not a community without communion. And I don't mean the Lord's Supper. I'm talking about communion, fellowship, partnership. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. Paul, and you see on his missionary journeys, he always had at least one person with him. Always had at least one person with him. God's intention has been for us to share this life. This is as convicting to to me as it is to anybody. How many of y'all know what color the inside of that house is out there? You know why you don't know? Because I have not invited you over to my house. I can complain about the time that I don't have, but but that I should not make excuse for not setting the example of how we are to live our life. I've, I've invited someone and they're like, yeah, we don't do that. There wasn't anybody here. But that, I, look, at least the effort was made, right? Folks, the church has always believed. Now, again, the gathering is for us to encourage one another, for us to provoke one another. But look, look what at the end of verse 25. Let's not miss this. But exhorting one another, that's encouraging one another. That's what takes place with preaching, right? I, there's a call to do something. So there is a call to don't abandon the gathering. Don't abandon the, the, the gathering of the church. Why? Look at, look at the end. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? The day of Jesus Christ, the return of Christ. 
Now, we talked about it in Sunday school this morning, just for a moment. We are now closer, and I'm literal here, we are now closer to the return of Christ than the apostles were, right? I would, I would venture to say that times are as least as bad and getting worse than they were in those days. Why do we gather to encourage one another to persevere in the faith? One of the marks of a genuine believer is that you persevere no matter what. No, nope, not perfectly. Look, there have been times when I've been tempted to walk away. But in that time, God has convicted me. A Christian can fall away from the faith for a period of time. But a genuine believer in Christ, one who is born again by God, cannot stay away. They will be brought back by God. Real quickly here, I believe there are two primary reasons for declining church attendance. And the amazing thing about this whole COVID mess there have been churches uh, dying, there have been churches closing, and there have been churches growing. So, and here's what I've seen, is the churches that are really growing, and I mean true, genuine growth, are those who have held tightly to the Word of God. Those who have preached the full counsel of God and can offer answers to the questions that people have. But the first problem that we see, and it's in John, uh, 1 John, I'm sorry, 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were never of us. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. I'll tell you a reason why people leave the church, because they were never Christian to begin with. They were not born again to, to, to begin with. That, that's, that's the scripture here. They were never a Christian. You say, well, Pastor, that's hard. Folks, that's the, that's the scripture. And when we see people like that, we ought to call them to repent. Call them, if they are truly born again, we ought to call them to repent and call them to return. But if they leave and display themselves to, be a, a not, to not be a Christian, then we are to call them to repent. We need to preach the gospel to them. The sad reality is that we, many people on that day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not do this? Did we not do that? And what is the words of Jesus going to be? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Oh, man, what a statement. That, what, what a mourning there is going to be when that is uttered, uttered. The second reason I believe people fall away from the church is they don't understand the purpose of the church in persevering with one another. One of the fruits of the Spirit is long-suffering. You know what long-suffering is? It's putting up with people. Right? Let's be honest. Every one of us have junk that we've got hanging on us. Right? I mean, we just got stuff that sometimes people don't want to deal with. Sometimes we don't even want to deal with it. We all have sin. We all have warts. We all have moles. We all have sores. We've all got these problems. Why? Because we are still in this human body. We are still in our humanity. And long-suffering looks past that. Long-suffering looks past someone's uh, weakness and frailty. But meekness... Cause that person to repent. We as believers have a mandate and an imperative to make disciples. Disciples are not to be made are not made in the church solely. They ought to be made when the gospel is preached in the public assembly. But as we're going to disperse here in a few moments, folks, you have a mandate from, from the King of Kings to go make disciples. Now, 
Let me close by saying this. I'm going to give you two reasons to attend church. Why should you be here? Why should you call someone who is not here and say, hey, we missed you today? Number one is our sanctification depends on it. My fighting of sin depends on you, and that gets to the second point, or me being accountable to you for you to come with grace, mercy, and meekness and to say, Brother Brian, what about this? What about this I saw? And for me to be able to do the same with you. See, the, real, the reality is that we don't want to be accountable to people. We want to try to hide our life. We want to try to hide our sin. We don't want to be an open book. We don't want to live in a fishbowl. We want to try to hide things. But folks, we're not called to do that. We are called to live our life together for our sanctification. And, and that is the process by which we are being made holy. You know what I've learned in 27 years of marriage and, and having three kids? Sanctification. Right? I mean, you have a wife and you have some kids, you're going to learn how to sanctify yourself. Right? Because dad doesn't always respond in a godly manner. Husband doesn't always respond in a godly manner. Wife does not always respond in a godly manner. But nonetheless, in the life of a Christian, it is a sanctifying work of God. So, look around, call someone, say, hey, we loved you, we miss you, Hope to see you back next week. Let's pray.